time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Just leave it like that. Because I hate, I hate headphones. Yeah. Hate them. Don't worry about it. All right. No worries. Yeah. Dude, it's so good to see you. It's been forever. Oh, well, yeah. Well, in person, it's been a while. When's yeah. the last time I saw you in person? Oh, God. I, I, I remember an event with you, me, and Daryl. I flew up to his house, and the three of us played three violins. Do yes, you remember that? we did. Yeah, and it was kind of meandering along, you know, nothing really happening because we were just play, uh, free improvising. Right. And then all of a sudden, you spoke up with your instrument. All of a sudden, you, you did this thing with pizzicato and bow spiccato and all kinds of shit at once. And that was it. You didn't need us. That, <laughs> that moment, uh, it was like in the 80s or something. Yeah, Long 90s. Time ago. 90s, yeah. yeah. But that moment... I will never forget because we were just not really doing much until that happened. That was really <laughs> incredible. Oh man, that. that that's that's such a wonderful memory. I can't believe you're you were acoustic really violin too. So yeah. you know the hard the hard way. The, the hard way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Without all the bells and whistles. Well, electric, you just don't touch it. You don't just, you know, it's not the finger but it's not a there's no bridge involved. Yeah. Except for pickup, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole different it's a whole different thing. And then you got that crazy axe that you're playing with those extra s strings. Right, that's string. a full, fully acoustic. It's a thirteen string uh, violin d'amore, like a viola d'amore. It's got uh, nine sympathetic strings underneath, going under the fingerboard, and four normal strings on top. I so see. all it does is like vibrate. Right. It's not very loud, but it's got its own kind of sound. It's got like it's built-in it reverb. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a real violin, so you have to, you have to, you know, <laughs> you have to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, all right. I'm gonna kick this show off officially, even though we've al we've already kind of yeah, keep all that stuff anyway. Yeah, started rolling. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. not gonna lose that. Yeah, but uh, but I'm gonna finally officially uh, introduce you all because right. uh, I'll start the show the way I usually start it. Okay. <laughs> hey, it's Tracy Silverman, your host of For the Greater Groove, the Future of Strings. And this podcast is all about playing rhythm and grooving on strings. And one of the reasons that we can play rhythm on stringed instruments, one of the huge innovations that opened up this doorway to playing rhythm on strings is a stroke we call the chop. And ladies and gentlemen, I am so honored to have on the show tonight the guy who invented the chop, Mr. Richard Green. And he's going to tell us how it happened one fateful night way back in his early days with Bill Monroe, the guy who invented bluegrass. He's a visionary and started this chop 
ball rolling about 50 or so years ago. Mr. Richard Green is here on the podcast, my old buddy, and I am so thrilled that you took some time to visit with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and I won't add anything to that. Oh, I've, I'm not done with your bio. Oh, okay. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> because because I got right here. I, I just wanted to show you for, oh, yeah. for our podcast people they can't see, but I'm holding up my LP of the duets record. This right. is how I first met Richard Green. Wow. I was maybe, I don't know, 18 years old or something, and I was in Sam Goody looking through one of the bins this is in New York. This is Sam Goody was a record store back when you had to go to right. a record store and look for records. And I'm looking through the bin of violins and I see this guy and I was like, it's a cool cover because he's like holding an imaginary violin. And that caught my attention right away because I just like the concept of that. But then he had hair that kind of was like mine. It was like curly, frizzy hair. And I was looking, I was like, I don't listen to this. And I took it home and this became immediately one of the most influential records of my life. I learned every song off this record. It still comprises pretty much the entire base of uh, of my bluegrass repertoire. Is wow. <laughs> right <Wow>. here, <laughs> which is you know, it's a, a good good choices, but not very deep on my part. But um, but uh, yeah, that's how I first met Richard Green. That record, which I know a lot of people uh, listen to, and that influenced a whole lot of folks. And then got to know him through the band C Train. And I was looking for my C-Train LPs, and I don't know what happened to them. I don't seem to have them anymore. I, so probably somebody ripped them off from me, no doubt. Uh, the Green String Quartet, the Green String Quartet, his discography, you go to his website, his discography is just endless. He's played on so many records over the years, everybody's records. He's a Grammy Award winner. He's an IBMA Award winner. He's one of the inventors of the whole new grass or new acoustic genre. He's got a great bluegrass book for anyone who's learning bluegrass. He's an, a, an amazing teacher, a natural teacher. He got a Grammy nomination for his The Grass is Greener project. What can I say? I am just thrilled to have Richard Green here on the show. <laughs> and Richard, are you going to tell us? I know I, I hate to even ask you to do this because... You've probably told the story so many times, you've got to be sick of it. But for our younger listeners, who I'm really hoping will be getting a lot out of this podcast, because this is kind of who I'm talking to, the, the future of strings, the young generation, they may not be familiar. They're doing the chop. They've heard everybody else playing the chop. And I think you should tell them where it started from. Okay. Uh, a little forward to that. I've looked at a lot of fiddle players teaching the chop. Yeah. And there's one guy who really nailed it. And he came up with a concept called the grid. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think I, that I, I think it. I may know who you're talking about. <laughs> that's right. That was a mind blower. Because I had actually not thought of that. But that's it. That's yeah. exactly the uh, milieu, the, uh, the, the, uh, content and um of, of what's going on so anyway that, that that's a that's a forward how now how i came up with it we have to talk about discovery versus invention first of all ah yeah now all inventions this is my theory 
All inventions start with a discovery. And then a lot of people discover things, they don't do anything with them. But I discovered this bow thing, kind of, you know, how you discover anything, you walk into it. Right. And uh, Bill Monroe asked me to just play rhythm for a while because I was Russian, like a, like a burglar. <laughs> I just couldn't keep it down, you know? So he was a great, great guru. So he said, Richard, just play some rhythm, no, no backup licks and your solos. He called me Richard. So that, so there I am playing rhythm. And the rhythm in those days, it was like in the world, four or five bluegrass fiddle players. That was it. Huh. This is the 60s. That wow. was it, really. Huh. Uh, so the rhythm was th that they would do then, they just tap with a tip on the backbeat. Uh-huh. Like that. Yeah. Uh, so I started doing that. But if you do that for an hour, yeah, you know, this yeah. pain starts sitting in. So I had to move it down to the frog and slam it down. That was a lot, lot less... Yeah. Wrist, it was, it was kind of easier to do that for a long time. And one of the times I did that, I lifted up the bow and there was this thing. And well, what the fuck is that? And that was the first chop in the world right there. There it was. You go down, you lift the bow up and you get that click. So I started, now, now the invention comes in. So I started doing that a lot. I would do like, you know, 16th notes. And every one of them would have a click in it. Right. It was kind of amazing. So then I left out some of the clicks, and then you have, you, have, you can do a backbeat at one every three out of four. There's your backbeat, right? There's your right. backbeat. Then all kinds of patterns became sort of available and noticeable. So that was the invention part. Yeah. And then that was in 1966. So I had a lot of time to work on that shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I so. Uh, I did, then went to Jim Queskin, didn't do much of it there. But then when I went to C-Train and play, started playing electric with a wah-wah pedal yeah. and the chop, yeah. now you're talking some, some shit. Because so, you <laughs> do the wah-wah pedal slow and just sort of change the tone slowly while you're chopping hard. Right. And that does kind of an amazing dynamic range there. Yeah. Or you could smash the pedal down on the click. On the right. up, or right. someone else, smash it down. Or de so the wah pedal was my real. I don't think anyone ever used it before on fiddle. I, it's, it's sort of bragging, but I'm not sure. Yeah, very possibly. So that not. was a real means of expression. That that pedal, I used it for volume and dynamics. I had a volume pedal that had only one 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 purpose: turn off my fiddle. Yeah, turn it off. <laughs> I, I never used it as an expression. Right. Uh, because you don't uh, need it. You got a bow, you know, we, we can do our own volume. Yeah, yes. But sometimes on stage, I had to turn it off. Yeah. Uh, one or wanted to. Uh, so I had the, the wah-wah pedal, then I had another button. Excuse my language. But this is what the button was called. It's called the black finger. <laughs> it's sort of got this printed on this silver box. <laughs> and what did it do? The most amazing fuzz tone in the world. Oh, okay. Violin. An acoustic electric violin. I wasn't being, playing a solid body at all. Right. I would use the Barkinson Barry bridge on my real good violin. That's how I did it. Right. Barkinson Barry had a, had a thing built into the center of the bridge. Right. A crystal, which is still, in my mind, the best pickup in the world. It yeah. hasn't been surpassed for an acoustic violin. I don't think I ever played in a solid body violin ever. 
I had some Parkinson Berry violins, which were hollow body, different color, red, black, and blue. Right. But they weren't as good as my real violin. Sure. Sure. So, and what which I could walk up to a mic and play as well. Just right. turn off that violin pedal and go to a mic and play acoustic violin in the same show, which I did. So it's very versatile to have Interesting. a real violin. Did you um did you have issues just curious with the distortion using the acoustic instrument was it would it feedback and howl and stuff? Uh, no no the Parkinson Berry is brilliant there are very little feedback have you ever used one on a bridge you know I think years ago I think yeah years ago I mean it might be surpass you know I have tried new ones as they've been coming out nothing touched that that original one with the yeah. crystal embedded huh. in the bridge little yeah. wire comes out and you attach got to get adapters and attach it stuff right. to that. I right, think you right. might have to have a preamp in there somewhere. Not so I'm curious. So I'm curious when you first started doing that chop with Bill Monroe. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. How did he take to that? Like ha having this new kind of percussion sound in the band? We never discussed it. He was, he's, he hardly ever spoke words, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he would just give you a look and then that was everything. <laughs> uh, one time he said, at the, when, some of the, my favorite recordings that I've ever done was the album I did with him. And there's this tune, Midnight in the Stormy Deep, where I experimented, experimented with, with contrasting moving lines in the double stops, uh -huh. which was, I learned, got that idea from Buddy Spiker, who was a friend of mine back then. Oh, yeah. Brilliant fiddle player. Oh, and yeah. He, I know Buddy real well here in Nashville, man. He's Right. And he taught me, listen to the pedal steel, if you want ideas. Interesting. So there they were. I did, you know. Uh, lines going like this. The harmonies, yeah. So um, I put that in Midnight and Stormy Deep. And at the very end of the, of the it was a beautiful take. Bill and Peter were sing, singing just gorgeous on this album. Yeah. So at the end of it, there's this like fade out. And I do this like, you know, kind of a slide down to a G sharp and an E. G sharp on the D string, E on the G sharp on the G string, D on the E string. So I sort of slid into that last E major chord. And then the mics were turned off, and Bill says, Richard, I wish you didn't do that. <laughs> that was bad for me. That was a bad moment. He hardly ever spoke. That's so, so funny. I now wish I never did that. It was not needed. I didn't, it was, I was just sticking my ass in there for some reason. It wasn't needed. Wow, he was, he liked to boil it down to the simplicity of it. Oh, yeah. He was, yeah. Well, look, he invented this, this form that is, Worldwide now, played in every country in the world, bluegrass. Yeah. yeah, but they don't—they don't know how to play. I mean, they don't know. They—they're learning from like ninth generation, today's bluegrassers. Yeah, very few of them go back to Bill Monroe and learn, which is I don't. They should. But yeah, doesn't seem like they do. Yep, go to the source. And I'm curious how playing rhythm, you know, like like that's kind of the his genius too. I think to to figure that out, but. But yeah. he, but you were so you said you were rushing like you were playing fiddle lines and it's kind of a little bit ahead of the beat. Yes, I'm guessing. And and he said to play rhythm. And what was it about playing the rhythm that mm. fixed the rushing? Uh one honest answer here. Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> I rushed the fucking violin my whole career. You know the string quartet. My wife played the other violin. And every second she says I was rushing, you know, <laughs> could have killed her. But she, because she's a classical violinist, she has a real honed, fine, finely honed sense of the violin. Yeah. She's a professional violinist, even right now today. 
plays the huh. first violin in the LA Opera today. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's like, you know, in her 70s. Unbelievable. Wow. So I would get really pissed, but she was right. <laughs> you know, I had to really concentrate to not rush. Yeah. My whole huh. career. Interesting. So there's your answer. Interesting. But it did help. I mean, obviously the chopping that you do and the groove that you that you do with the chop, something about that going going to the rhythmic aspect as opposed to playing a melody yeah, it did seemed help. to kind of fix it or help it a put, lot. Put the backbeat in your rhythm lines. Yeah. Which I learned from Scotty Stoneman, by the way, uh-huh. who is, I think, the greatest fiddler who ever lived. I'll say that right now. Huh. Your young people probably don't even know about this guy. Yeah. It's hard to hear on the internet, but I got recordings. Uh, I learned that from him. He had the best, he could, he played the Kentucky Colonels back then with Clarence White in the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Clarence was relieved of playing. So Clarence got developed this like waving kind of rhythm stuff, kind of smooth, uh, wavies. And Scott would provide the backbeat for that band. Huh. And Roland White played mandolin, but he was kind of soft. So, but that was a great band. Right? This huh. is, Interesting. So that's where I heard him like every night at the Asheville. I would just go down there and hear him, hang out huh. with him. He was my fiddle guru, Scotty Stoneman. Nice, nice. And of all, and, and of, you know, you've played with so many people and, and you've had uh, several different important projects of your own. You had C Train, which yeah. were, how, how many records were there? There were uh, at least three or four. Three with the second tour with George Martin. Then there was a fourth one after I left the band, which okay. I won't comment on. <laughs> so there's three with me. Three with you, yeah. And uh, that project, the uh, the Green String Quartet, yeah. with Bill Monroe, which of those was the funnest, most fulfilling for you? you oh, say? Bill Monroe. I mean, that, that was my favorite recording session of my life. There was, I was in my 20s. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. In our 20s, you know that you don't know this till you're in your seventies, by the way. <laughs> but that's be any good in your twenties. That's your peak. Yeah. And you look at the young guys coming up now; they're all in their twenties. They're peaking, and yeah. I, you don't know that then. You think yeah. like you're unformed. You think you're just you're going to get somewhere. Right. It's but so you're true. There. You're that's, already fucking there. That's so and true. so that Bill Monroe, there was a combination of learning the technology, which was fresh. And when that technology is fresh, that's when you sort of innovate and you're not tired of it. 30 years later, you're tired of it. It's, you're yeah. not, there's a right. moment when you right. first start learning things that you're the best at it. But you keep thinking, no, no, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. That's, huh. that's the wrong, I don't agree with that. Yeah. You're there. Because at that moment of learning, the technique and technology combined with a, a goal, an immediate goal of playing a great solo, in front of Bill Monroe, come on. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna replicate that later in life. No. Yeah. So that's my favorite project ever. And I listen to it now and I say, oh my God, that's that's the best I could do. Wow. Wow. No, I've done so the great thing. No, I'm being a little bit uh, exaggerating it here, but that was my favorite project. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. And then. And then after that, you moved. Well, you were in the uh, Great American String yeah, Band, David right? Yeah, David Yeah, that was in '74. Yeah, that was right after Sea Train, or maybe during it a little bit. And boy, that that band was 
my, my own, a tie for a favorite, maybe. We're going to find a lot of ties now. <laughs> with Daryl and... No, it was with me and Grisman and uh, bass and guitar. Uh, oh, okay. And those, those two players like change around a little bit, and um, all music, all instrumental. We did we did a big big tour, all up and down California, where we opened for Maria Muldar, who oh, just nice. broke her big single at the end, seventy four or something. Yeah. And boy, that was that was really memorable. He and I sort of had a thing. Uh, that I don't know, some kind of a connection. Some kind of magic would happen when he played it, when I played with him. Grisman. Yeah. So there's that one. Um, then, uh, then I made one of the big mistakes of my career. I left that band to make to make some real money. Mm-hmm. And the band was called Loggins and Messina. Uh-huh. And what their specialty was, 50s rock and roll, covers. That's what they did. So they wanted a fiddle player for some reason. And because uh, huh. they always had a fiddle player. In a so 50s rock band, band, that's kind of funny. It's like the one instrument that isn't in 50s rock. Yeah. So I, did, I didn't play a whole, a, from the major part of the set, I wasn't even playing. <laughs> so I had a, a flask of, um, what's that sweet whiskey that Janice uh, tur- Wild turkey or something? No, it was, uh, I don't remember the name. Anyway, I had a flask <laughs> of that behind my amp. And I was always back there during these shows. And that was not not fun for me at all. But that's why I left Grisman. So huh. talk about going from the fire into yeah. cold water or something. That was Yeah. You know, well, sometimes, you know, sometimes we all do that. You know, we make some decisions. Yeah. We do the money gig. And, yeah. you know, you got to do that because you got to keep a roof over your head. And if you want to be a creative musician, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that was 74 or 5 right there. Then a lot happened, you know, a lot happened after that. Uh, so what, what are you thinking of? You know, C-Train, C-Train was definitely a, a place where I connected with you, you know, just because it was getting more into the rock stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah Gerald Langer loved that one too. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, you, you've always had a real kind of dramatic flair, I would say. Oh. Yeah. You know, a, a a real kind of showman attitude, and and you know when you finish a solo or just you know it was it had that rock energy, you know, which um, somehow I I associate that that kind of a little bit of craziness of that rock energy with you that somehow. I guess the Bill Monroe band, you know, uh, it was there. Or you were just kind of keeping it a little more in check, I guess. Or he was keeping it in check. <laughs> no, no, I hadn't played rock and roll ever. So yeah, what what I was doing in, in the, with Bill Monroe was trying to play something different than had ever been played. And I wasn't thinking of rock and roll. I was just thinking, I was listening to lot, some jazz a lot. Mm. And pedal steel and... Uh, Jazz violin, the Giovanuti, by the way, in my mind, is one of the first bluegrass fiddlers. <laughs> you listen to him, go back, read some interesting, you know, the crossbowing thing, you know what that is? Yeah. I mean that? He yeah, did yeah. that in yeah. the 20s. That double shuffle kind of yeah, yeah. yeah, he did yeah. that. Yeah. In the, so he, so there I was listening to him. Yeah, you uh, know, there's a little bit, it's kind of close right there, uh, that kind of rhythm uh, to ragtime. Yes. There's a sort of... You know, yeah. like that kind of back and forth thing that happens in the Absolutely. left hand of the piano and stuff. 
Absolutely. Yeah, very cool. And you were, you know, I mean, you were using distortion and wah-wah and stuff like that. So that yeah. was, uh, I, th you know, I thought breaking some new ground for us fiddle players. Yeah, I was trying to, yeah. Uh, being different was a, was a big uh, premise for me. Yeah. Just be different. Yeah, well, that goes to that inventor thing, you know, having yeah. that kind of visionary mindset where, like, I was just talking to a friend about this. It's like, you know, the desire to just want to do something unique, do something that nobody else is doing, because otherwise you're just sounding like everybody else. You know, so yes. who needs who needs another Tchaikovsky violin concerto recording? You know, that was my attitude. It's like I didn't want to be one of everybody else. I wanted to do something different. And I think you have that same. And that's maybe how, uh, you know, I connected so easily with your music. You could just tell that you you wanted to stand out. You wanted to 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 do something memorable and unique. Yeah. You you created something for me. That's you're sort of the king of that loop business. Yeah. Nobody can touch you with the loops. Oh, thank and you. And how you work it, how you use it. So I think that's one of your big contributions. But you can't, how do you copy that? You can't. How is someone else going to figure that out? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have well, to create the, the material that goes into the loop. Yeah. But that takes a lot of, you know, musical intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> and speaking of musical intelligence, you were, you started out classically, correct? Uh, yeah, as a kid. Right. Until about 13 or 14, which I hated it, so I just quit. But then I went back, I was about 35 years old and started to do studio work in Hollywood, which attracted the greatest violinists in the world to come there because the yeah. money was so amazing. Right. So I'm sitting in a, I'm hired to play fiddle stuff, and, but they, they put me in the section to play that easy stuff and then stand up and play solos here occasionally. So I'm sitting in the middle of a sea of great, amazing violinists, world-renowned. Yeah. And that I'd never been that close to that before. So I said, okay, I'm taking violin lessons again. And I went seriously back, practiced five, six hours a day. Wow. For 10 years. Holy cow. Nonstop. During, during everything else I was doing. Where, what uh, years was this? What, what years are we talking about? Uh, well, we'll be uh, 70, let's see. Probably the late seventies. Okay, so like yeah. after C Train, after yes. the oh, yes. American, yeah, after after all that, huh? Uh, for for ten years, and uh, again, I, I took the do what the guru says approach. That's the only way to really learn. And so she had a which is called the Galamian mm -hmm. method. I of, studied with I that guy, which is I happen to love that. So I just whatever she said, I just did. Huh. And I would I, I would try to do my own stuff here and there, and she would not like it, and I would, it would injure me deeply inside. But I would just <laughs> you know, um, Lori Ulanova was her name. She was a the principal second violin in the LA Philharmonic, so oh. she was very accomplished. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and my guru for a long time. I see on the viol on the classical violin. Right. 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 Uh, that was a wonderful learning thing for me all those years all those concertos wow yeah. very cool to to come back to them after all that other success and to want to improve yeah yeah well i had never really gotten to them as a kid yeah so they were kind of you know mind-blowing material in there yeah 
Um, I'll bet, and I'll bet that influenced a lot of your writing for the Green String Quartet. Oh yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, yes, of course. Yeah. And let me ask you, you know, so you will certainly be remembered as the inventor of the chop. Yeah. Um, but is there anything else in about your playing that you would want people to remember, other than the fact that you used to rush all the time? Well, the the electric. <laughs> The wah wah pedal thing, I'm pretty proud of. Yeah. I don't think that had been, I think that was brand new back then. Uh, in terms of violin playing, uh, just sort of a trademark or stylistically, or I don't know. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah, curious. Um, not that uh, there's a lot of stuff I used. I have a book out called Bluegrass Fiddle that has all kinds of exercises and etudes and stuff based on specific things like. The, the first finger is a capo. Mm -hmm. I really right. uh, looked into that. That's a very useful thing because yeah. then you can play an F sharp. Yeah. What's, what's the problem? You know? <laughs> so uh, there's that, but that's in the ah, book. Interesting. The, if you get that, anyone with that book would see a lot of things that I've concentrated on, focused on, and maybe developed further than bef had been before. Uh, like your, your books have do the same thing. You do do deep dives into things that haven't been done yet. Yeah. So we both have that sort of legacy going. Yeah. yeah. Very cool, man. Very cool. And uh, and these days you've been doing a lot of photography, a lot of really oh, well, beautiful. Oh, yeah, well, that's my, my love. Uh, yeah. Up, up until the 19 of the 2010s, I had maybe hundreds of private students, sometimes seven or eight a day. I was really piling them on. Wow. And they started, they would knock on my door and here I am working on photography. And I started getting pissed off, angry, really <laughs> angry. And that happened for like years of me getting angry. I said, wait a minute, I'm gonna stop this. And I just cut it, huh. just cut it and stayed on the photography. And uh -huh. then, but there was a, the last tour I ever did was in 2013 with the Jim Queskin Jug Band reunion with Bill Keith and Jeff Mulder and you know, some great musicians in that, in that band. But Fritz had no, no Jug because he had passed. So um, that was in Japan. And I contracted a heart disease on that tour wow. and came back really sick. Wow. Not knowing any, not knowing why or anything. Turned out I had something called endocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle, wow. a bacterial infection of the heart muscle. And it was killing me. I could hardly move. So this is 2013. I the treatment for that is, is antibiotics, intravenous for like two, two or three months every day. Wow. Which is kind of exhausting. So I went through that. Wow. The the end of which. I'm, I'm a healthy, upright human being, but I can't play the fiddle. Mm. I didn't have the strength. I couldn't do it anymore. That was it. So that's fine. No problem. I'm just doing photography anyway. And let me tell you something happened. My whole life as a fiddle player was climbing up the up a mountain, trying to achieve, 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 get gigs, beg people to like me, you know, try to get into festivals. Yep. Why don't you like me? You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's my life as a fiddle, you know, 
that's your life if you're trying to get work. Yeah, you're hustling up all this the mountain. Time. All of a sudden, I'm going down the mountain. Oh my God, you have no idea how good that felt. <laughs> to stop all that shit. You know, but now I'm back into that same shit doing, trying to sell photography and trying to get people to like me on that. On that. Uh, so, Different but, it's not as, but it's not as painful because I already know about it. I already know about the, the pain. You know? <laughs> so, boy, but not climbing that mountain was, was great to huh. stop. No, it's great to stop. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that because during the pandemic, oh. you know, everybody had, you know, that we're just hopefully coming out of. Um, I started focusing on the stromboing stuff and yeah, yeah. Uh, getting my courses together and stuff. And I kind of put the violin down and and didn't play it for months and months mm. and like a year or more. And it just got rusty and rustier. And it was such a relief to not have anything that I had to practice for or prepare for, get nervous about, oh my God, I got to learn this thing. I got to memorize it. It's not memorized yet. And I was like, I got, I can just not worry about staying in shape. I can let my calluses go away and not worry about it. And I'm just going to get into something else. And what a relief that was. It's the, probably the first time in 45 years that's happened to me. You and I love the pandemic. It, 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 really, it, it allowed us to do what it, exactly what we want. Exactly. Which is stay home. Yes. That's what we want to do. What's the problem? <laughs> so I've developed a lot of photography. Oh, I've got a lot of gorgeous stuff, way man. Producing books. I mean, I got a lot done. I'm still right doing it now. Yeah. Uh, but but you went back to the fiddle. You sound great now. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I had a couple of gigs. I had to play, and I I had to woodshed my butt off to to get back into shape. Yeah, it was hard to get back in. But uh, yeah, the first thing that goes for me intonation. That's always oh. the first to go, the last to come back. <laughs> I, I stopped in 2013, but uh, a, a common friend of ours, Julie Lieberman, yes, who was a great supporter of, of ours. She does yes. these wonderful workshops, gives us these jobs. So well, one earlier job I did, uh, the Strings Without Boundaries, mm -hmm. I kind of bailed at the last minute. It was kind of not ethical of me, but I had to for various reasons. And I always felt horrible about that, doing that to Julie. Yeah. So in 2016, this is three years after I quit. Yeah, I just said I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make this up. So I uh, agreed to play in her Strings Without Boundaries 2016. Now I hadn't played in three years. Wow! In fact, I couldn't play. It was exhausting. But I somehow got it together. Practiced, lo you know, losing breath with every bow, wow. and somehow got it together to be able to play. And went up there to Seattle. And did that, and Daryl was there, by the way, and um, and we were going to teach the chop and all this, and did the workshops. Then I realized, wait a minute, Grisman lives right across the, the thing in, in Port Townsend, so I'm going to go visit him. So, but we, my wife was with me, went over there, and visited him, and just started talking and everything. He said, "Got your fiddle, take, get it out." And I said, oh, "No, no, I don't play anymore." And sat there for an hour not playing. And then I realized, wait a minute, I had just practiced. I'm, I just got back in shape after three years. <laughs> Went in, got the fiddle, and played with him, just he and I. And, oh, his son, Sam Grisman, one of the best bass players alive. Huh. This guy's a genius. Wow. The three of us jammed, 
And it almost all came back. It was like yeah. the old days in 74 huh. for like an hour or two. That was it. So that's actually the last time they ever played. Huh. And it was wow. really, really great. Man. Um, I heard some stuff of you. In fact, I just posted it on my Greater Groove, um, the Facebook group. You should uh, oh. go take a look at it. Some stuff that you did in 2012. You were playing uh, playing awesomely well, man. You did uh, this is like variations on, um, what was it? Oh, Amazing, Amazing Grace. Grace. It was Amazing those are, Grace. I have, those yeah. are two unaccompanied violin things that I've got out there. Yeah. That I'm kind of proud of. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it was killer playing your intonation was spot on and i'm going like this guy has studied some serious classical because that's like you know all these big chords a lot of yeah. like solo yeah. bach like that stuff is not easy and then funny, grooving the rhythm stuff like a monster you know there's a funny element to that that was done live in a church where my daughter's an opera singer and back oh, wow. then she was singing in churches uh, so we went to one of her things and, and she put me, what got them to put me on the bill to play something. So I went up to play that and I had my violin case. I have two bows in my case. Uh-huh. The one that is the great hill bow that chops like a motherfucker. I use a hill as well. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And then there's this other bow that's not so good for chopping. And I absolutely took the wrong bow out. Huh. And I'm realizing, that, oh my God, what, how am I going to get through this? And the chopping, I got through it, but to my very sensitive ears, it's not quite quite yeah. the, there the way it would be with that hill bow. Interesting. Well, I would yeah. never have known. I, no, I'm glad, but I just I just told you, so now you're gonna look for it. <laughs> now I will look for it. <laughs> maybe this maybe there's something about those hill bows because I've had this bow all my life and oh, yeah. it does chop very nicely. Oh, the yeah, balance is wonderful. Chop, yeah, the balance you know, is great. Round stick, uh yeah. You can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know how um, how the because yeah, I've heard from Daryl's perspective, you know, that yeah. the tablets were handed down from Richard to him. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah. A, and I'm curious to know from your perspective how it was teaching the job to Daryl and how fast did he learn it? How fast did he pick it up and how fast did he start building on it? And what That's did you question. think of what he what he did to it? Oh, it's a great question because I'm I'm still pissed off about something. <laughs> he comes to my house. Okay, I'll, I want to learn the chop. This very room comes in, learns it right away. No, it, it's no problem. Yeah. Just right away got it because I, I I mean I'm good at teaching it as well. Yeah. So <laughs> that's all fine. And I had my green string quartet then, and he had the Turtle Island quartet then. Right. So he oh, goes he already back. had Turtle Turtle Island. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Goes back. And teach the chop to everybody in the quartet. <laughs> and that pissed me off because I, my quartet couldn't get it the way his quartet did. <laughs> so in, in some ways, his quartet was better than my quartet. Because so, of you. Because of me. <laughs> but he was so good. I mean, he taught it all. They all could do it great back then. Too funny. <laughs> yeah. No, he, right. he was, he's, he's brilliant. He's He's uh, he took my place in the, in the Great American Music Band. Yeah, and the first album with Grisman, which was Grisman's best-selling albums ever, back way back then. And uh, I should have been on that album, but I was off drinking uh, whatever that stuff was. <laughs> it's red something. Uh, it's like a liqueur, uh-huh. a whiskey. 
That's I remember funny. coming to your house and just being impressed. Like you're like right under the Hollywood sign. Yeah. That's where I am right now. Same place. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool now, what, locale. Were you alone? What was that? You came I don't, I don't remember how I ended up at your, I think Daryl brought me over there. Somehow I was in town for, I think with Turtle Island. Yeah. Cool. Good stories, man. Well, yeah. are you, are you ready to play our not my gig? game yeah. did i tell you yeah. about did i warn you about not my gig well i, I saw it on other podcasts the other po okay well yeah, if, but if, I fuck up, if i fuck up don't use it because <laughs> i don't know anything don't make it too hard for me by getting everything right oh yeah sure all right so richard green one of the founding members of c train we're going to find out how much you know about seaplanes oh okay <laughs> wow so your first question three questions get two out of three right and you win question number one seaplanes are divided into two types float planes and flying boats depending on whether or not which part of the plane touches water a the wings b the fuselage or C, the tail. The wings. The wings. It's kind of easy. It's actually right? it's actually the fuselage. Oh my god! I'm afraid. Oh, okay. I'm afraid it's the fuselage because what happens is like the flying boats. Uh, they look like the whole yeah. fuselage is in the water, and the and the float planes are like they have the legs with the floats on the bottom of oh, the legs. Man. So there you go. Oh, All right, man. that's okay. Two more questions. This is a true or false. <laughs> All right. True or false. The use of seaplanes tapered off after World War II. The use of seaplanes yeah, yeah. tapered off. Well, this is a guess again. I mean, <laughs> I would say true. You are right. It is true. Because there were war true. machines back then. They we were just, war machines. And, you know, the popularity, the reason they were so popular is because you could land them. There weren't a lot of airports. There weren't a lot of airfields back in the 30s before the yeah. war, right? And during yeah. the war, they built all these airfields all over the world to for military purposes. And then suddenly you didn't need these, these seaplanes anymore. You could just land a regular land craft. Yeah. All right. Here it is. The third question, the... The tiebreaker or the match yeah, yeah. point. The Pan Am Boeing 314, which oh. was just this humongous lumbering seaplane. Yeah. Introduced in 1939, before the war, was one of the largest flying boats. Was it famous for its A, first class <laughs> dining and cabin service? B, its ability to fly long distances, or C, its ability to handle rougher water conditions well? Well, I'm, I'm going to go with the food because the other two things I couldn't do was too big. I well, you are absolutely right. And in fact, all three of those were correct. It could go long distances, oh. it could handle rougher water, and it had first class dining and cabin service a ticket it was it was a travel form of travel for the super rich yeah. 
Um, a ticket back then was $675, which is the equivalent of 12000 bucks, which isn't really that much more than a first-class ticket going to Europe, right? Yeah, now. or, or <laughs> how about one of those uh, going into space tickets? Yeah, yeah or nothing like that. It <laughs> took 19 hours to go from San Francisco to Honolulu. 19 hours, because it, it flew at 188 miles per hour. Still better than driving. <laughs> Which is really hard, hard way to get from San Francisco yes. to Honolulu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You win two out of three. You are a winner of Not My Gig. Okay, great. Congratulations to you, Richard Green. Send me the badge. <laughs> Dude, it's been really wonderful to reconnect. It's been way too oh, yeah. long. Been way too long. Thanks for All taking right. the time to chat. Really appreciate oh, it, Richard. Love you, man. It's just beautiful. Stay well, man. Love you too, bud. All right. Bye-bye, man. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. Groove on.